I want to start tonight um, with a confession. I'm someone who finds it incredibly easy to be infatuated with whatever thing that's shiny and sparkly and bright that pops its head up in front of me. I don't know if you're in a similar situation where if something comes along and it's new and it gives comfort, it's the latest and the greatest, I kind of, I want it. I mean, it'll make life easier, won't it? It'll make life better. There are things that this world is so good at that it puts in front of us, a vacuum cleaner that sucks more. Well, that's the one time in life you want something that sucks more than something else, right? Because that's what you want, a vacuum cleaner that sucks. Like that's, 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 I want one that'll work really well. Or, you know, a, a, a laptop whose battery goes for days. Or a phone whose battery lasts more than a day. Like, that would be amazing. Um, there are all these things that come in front of us. And if I'm honest, the area that I kind of find myself gravitating towards most often is Apple products. I don't know if you find that as well. Um, Apple products seem to have this effect on me that something new comes out. I'm like, that will make me a better person. I don't know if you find that. I think that there's a whole list of great reason to use Apple products. They just work. They do. Uh, You open them up and they they start. I haven't restarted my Mac uh, in about four or five weeks. It's still running. I just open it and I keep typing and I shut it and it just doesn't crash. It's generally good. It's reliable. Uh, Apple products are simple but not simplistic. Uh, you can get under the hood and do stuff, and they look good. Uh, and all their phones, they don't have an operating system that rhymes with hemorrhoid, which is great. Every time you say the other one, I'm just like, ooh. Anyway, th- there's so many good things about Apple products. And I think um, the best thing Apple does, though, is their marketing. They are absolute geniuses at making you want something you never even knew existed, and suddenly you need it. They get you hooked like good retail companies do. It's probably what they're trying to do on one more thing. One more thing. Have you ever heard yourself going, I just need this one more thing, then I'll be sorted. One more thing that'll make my life better. One more thing that'll bring me satisfaction. In fact, one more thing was a trademark line of Steve Jobs, one of the founders of Apple. Here's a picture of him giving one of their keynote addresses. He'd stand on the stage in cult-like fashion with all the Apple fanboys and girls coming to see what would be unveiled at the next Apple event. And they'd go through a number of permutations of things that they'd do. And then just at the end of each presentation, as if it was almost the end, Steve would kind of go to walk off the stage and go, oh, sorry, I forgot. One more thing. And then he'd pull out an iPad. And no one has ever seen this before. This is amazing. And everyone would be like, whoa. So much so. You can go on YouTube. Don't do it now. You can go on YouTube and look at one more thing, Steve Jobs. There's people who've collated every time he said it at all these, all these conferences. And like, look at the way he does it from the beginning. One more thing. And you're like, yes. So much so that you start hearing toward like the middle and to the end of these five minutes of collated videos. Yeah, I know. Don't really have much of a life. That's what I was watching. Um, but towards the end, he says, oh, one more thing. And everyone roars in the audience because they know something new is about to come. Something that's not just a, an add-on. Something that's an amazing thing that's about to happen. Well, this week in the passage we've got before us, God has one more thing for Pharaoh. One more thing that will change the face of the world if we understand it in its full context. See, at this point in time, we've been with the story of the Israelites, the Hebrews, the descendants of Abraham, who God, the creator of all things, gave a promise to that he would love them and make them his people and bless them. And through Abraham and his descendants, bless the whole world and that he would give them a land of their own and they would be prospering in this with God as their God and them as his people. And we saw that kind of happen and then come into the land of Egypt where the Egyptians loved Joseph and then the family, but then forgot him and put them under oppression and oppression and oppression. And this is God's family here in slavery. We saw that this Pharaoh that had God's people, the the Israelites in, in slavery, had them there not because he was afraid of them, but because he was afraid of losing them. Afraid of losing his comfort that they provided as slaves, his security for who they were. He wasn't afraid they were going to take over them. He was afraid they were going to go. And that's exactly what God had been saying through Moses was going to happen to these people. But then through Moses, this true and living God made himself known. 
Last week we saw plague after 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 plague. Nine plagues. Nine huge signs that come through to show that Pharaoh was not dealing in this battle with some local god or some kind of magician like David Copperfield, if you even know who that is. But he is dealing right now with the creator of the universe. And this creator of the universe is so powerful and so in control that Pharaoh must listen to him. Pharaoh must recognize he is no god. But there is a true and living God. It's a face-off between Moses' God, Yahweh, and Egypt's Pharaoh. The last encounter we get through these nine plagues, we see an interesting moment that last week we didn't touch on in the sermon, but I thought interesting when I went over it in, in my notes beforehand. Because if we get to the end of chapter 10, we see Moses and Pharaoh face to face for the last time. Listen to what happens. Exodus chapter 10, verse 24. Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, Go, this is after nine plagues, right? Go, worship Yahweh. Even your families might go with you. Only your flocks and herds must stay behind. Moses responded, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings to prepare for Yahweh our God. Even our livestock must go with us. Not a hoof will be left behind because we will take some of them to worship Yahweh our God. We will not know what we will use to worship Yahweh until we get there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Again, reminding us that God is in control even of the heart of Pharaoh. And he was unwilling to let them go. Pharaoh said to him, leave me. Make sure you never see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you will die. Pharaoh's had enough. He's got to the point in this with Moses. He doesn't even want to see him again. He's like, get out of my face. You are not leaving. Chapter 10, verse 29, you hear Moses reply. As you have said, I will never see your face again. And that's where it stops. Then chapter 11 starts reminding us of what this God had said to Moses back in chapter 4, that God would not just bring nine plagues, but ten. And in this final plague that he would bring, it would be enough to crush Pharaoh and remind Pharaoh who God really is. The tenth plague would show who the real king was. It would be clear, a big pointer, that there was a king. And it wasn't Pharaoh. It was God. And so, in 11 verse 4, as Moses exits the presence of of Pharaoh for the last time. Almost as if he's walking out the door, he throws the Steve Jobs line straight in. Oh, one more thing. Verse 4. So Moses said, this is what Yahweh says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt and every firstborn male in the land of Egypt will die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne to the firstborn of the servant girl who is behind the millstones as well as every firstborn of the livestock. Then there'll be a great cry of anguish throughout all the land of Egypt, such as never was before or ever will be again. Not really what you're expecting for one last thing. One last thing that would change the world. This is one last stab, it seems. And I want us to sit for a moment here with the horror of what goes on. To see the horror of what happens. 12 verse 29. Now at midnight, that night, the Lord struck every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and every firstborn of the livestock. During the night, Pharaoh got up, along with all his officials and All the Egyptians, there was a loud wailing throughout Egypt because there wasn't a house without someone dead. Have you been a Christian for a while? You know this story. You've seen the movie. You know, there are 10 plagues, and you're like, yep, yep. But we miss the gravity of how horrific this is. There was not a house in all of Egypt without someone in it who died that night. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine 
the noise of the wailing, the crying, the pain of knowing every house had someone die. Not just some, not just someone in your street, some distant relative. Every house had someone die. I've been trying to think through this week, and particularly the end of this week, what this passage has to say to us. And I was finding that I just wasn't, I couldn't understand the depth of what was going on here. And then something kind of odd happened. Last night, uh, it was about 12 o'clock, I was finishing off a talk, getting some stuff done. So 12 o'clock at night, uh, midnight. And I hear from the bedroom above me, my son Ethan, not my firstborn, but second, scream at the top of his voice. He's like, Dad! Like this. I'm like, Dad! I'm like, far out. That's, that's. I got up, I walk upstairs, Sarah's already gone out, she's woken up, she's gone in, uh, she's at the bed, he's on the top bunk, I walk in, and I'm like, mate, what's wrong? And he's like, I just, I just had this dream. Now, I haven't talked to him about any of this. He goes, I just had this dream where I, I woke up, and there was someone standing at the window wanting to kill me. What he dreamed last night was a reality for every house. In the land of Egypt. Now as you hear that. I don't know if your first response is kind of like mine. Who would do that? How is that okay for a God or someone to actually kill so much? Why is this going on? And there's a sense in which I'm a little bit like. Ooh, I don't know if I want to talk about a God who would do this. But we need to actually understand what's going on. Because you'll see as we look through this next, through con- next few concepts. That actually... God was very justified in what went on. Here's why. Firstly, the offense of Pharaoh. The offense of Pharaoh. At the start of Exodus, we remember that God's people are in Egypt and Pharaoh has them under oppression. And what happens? God hears their cry. Israel are in Egypt in this foreign land and Pharaoh is making them cry. He's twisting their arm. He's putting them under slavery and they cry out to God because of their oppression. Pharaoh did that. And now God comes and says about his people, now you will cry. Now the wailing won't be my people, but yours. You do not mess with me and my people, for I am God. You do not treat them that way. Pharaoh was not innocent. There's a great reversal going on here the whole way through. You see, what happens is that the family of Abraham came with, to Egypt with nothing. In fact, they came begging for food. They were then oppressed by the Egyptians. And they end up leaving, look for the reversal, with the Egyptians giving them everything. Their possessions get handed over. The Egyptians give favorably to the Israelites as they leave. And what happens to Pharaoh and all his people? They're stripped of everything, even of their firstborn sons. You muck around with my firstborn son Israel, says God, and you'll be left with nothing. And the plagues, as you look back, just have a look through them. It's kind of like God is uncreating the world. Water that gives life, he turns to blood. Uh, Their food sources, they all get eaten up. Hail comes out and uncreates all the plants and and takes them all back. God is saying, I'm taking everything back and starting afresh. And that's exactly what he's doing. Pharaoh has offended God. He's not treated him as the God who exists, who is. He is not innocent in this. And neither are his people. But the second reason why... This is just, it might cause you to think a little more, but is the idea of the firstborn. The idea that keeps being spoken of that Israel, this nation, are God's firstborn. And there's something special about the idea of being firstborn. Now we know, you know, the oldest child in the family, if that's you, they're always the one that does it tough, but they always, you know, they're the kind of the leader in, in, in a sense. And there's that sense that we recognize there, but... There's more going on about the firstborn as you look throughout the whole Bible. Firstly, God says this in Exodus 13, verse 1. It's on the screen. The Lord spoke to Moses, Consecrate to me the firstborn from every womb among the Israelites, both man and domestic animal, it is mine. It kind of strikes me as odd. God is saying... Every firstborn child from every family of the Israelites and every firstborn domestic animal needs to be consecrated to me. In other words, if it's an animal, kill it, sacrifice it, and show that you are honoring me by saying it is mine. 
And if it's a child, then sacrifice something in its place to show that it is mine. There's a whole possessive thing happening here that this is the way that God operates. Now to us, we kind of go, that's a bit weird. Why would God want that? Child sacrifice. God doesn't want child sacrifice, does he? Why would, why would he want this? But we must be very, very careful not to be so arrogant as to tell God how to think. To tell this one what is right and what isn't. Do you see how arrogant that is? In fact, there is one point where God does require child sacrifice. That's with Abraham and his son Isaac. Abraham and his wife Sarah, they had been barren for many, many years. He's 90 years old. There is no children who have come from this. And in Genesis 22, look it up later, write it down, Genesis 22, 7 and 8. We see that God calls Abraham to take his only son Isaac, his firstborn. The one whom through God is going to bless the world and make him have many descendants. He says, take him, walk him up the hill, build an altar, put him on the altar and kill him. Now, when I get to that part of the Bible, when I'm reading the Bible with my kids, there's a bit of me that doesn't want to read it. There's a bit of me that wonders whether Nathaniel will go, Dad, I'm the first one. Why did that happen? Like, what is going on here? And that's exactly what Isaac said. Let me read it to you. Genesis 22, verse 7. Then Isaac spoke to his father. They're on the way up, right? My father, he replied, Here I am, my son. Isaac said, The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? I'm going to stop for a second. Why did Abraham go, yeah, okay, I'm fine just to go up this this hill and sacrifice my son. What was going on there? Why was that okay? I take it because this idea of the firstborn was known to them. The firstborn belongs to God. And Isaac has rightly replied as he's walked up the hill, where is the lamb? Where is the lamb that will buy back the firstborn? Listen to Abraham's reply. 22 verse 8 of Genesis. God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them walked on together for what is one of the most spine-tingling moments in the Bible. He lays him on the altar. He gets his knife to slit his only son's throat. And God says, stop. You're going, where is the lamb? They turn around and in the bushes is this ram caught. But was that the ram? Moses, in chapter 4 of Exodus, has another encounter that's kind of weird. We didn't talk about it when we went through in Genesis 4. Um, Uncle Jeff's preached that passage. And uh, there was this bit in there where um, Moses and his wife are cruising along the road. And then God comes down and says, I'm going to kill your firstborn son. And in his wife, she, she runs, gets a flint and cuts off all their foreskin. You're like, whoa, that's weird. Uh, check it out, end of, end of Exodus chapter 4, you're like, what's going on there? And then God doesn't kill the son. You're like, okay, and then it just continues on. And everyone's like, well, what was that? <laughs> Especially the guys. <laughs> Sorry, well, what is going on here? But God came down, and, and what is going on? I take it that it's this. They hadn't offered the blood being spilt. They hadn't offered the right of the covenant that God had had for the firstborn son. The firstborn son is God's and God came to take that firstborn son because they hadn't obeyed him in the way he had provided for those children, for that child to be free. And what happens? Once the blood is spilt, God's anger relents. There's an expectation throughout the Bible that the firstborn belongs to God. It is his And we see this played out favorably towards God's people with Pharaoh. Because God talks about Israel as his own firstborn son. They are my people. My firstborn son, my children. They belong to me. And the moment Pharaoh starts sticking his fingers in, and the moment he starts oppressing them and hurting God's people, God says, they are mine. And I will do everything within my power, which is a lot, to keep them as my people. The offensive Pharaoh is refusing to let God's firstborn go back to him. But for the Israelites, it's not the death of the firstborn, but another death they are confronted with that night. That night there was a death 
in every house, not just the Egyptian houses. The firstborn male died or the death of a lamb was had. And it's where we get one of the events that really becomes the defining event for the nation of Israel called the Passover. And we as Kiwis, Australians, we don't really have nation-defining events. The closest thing I can think of is Anzac Day, right? It does define kind of at least the nations, the way we've worked together a little bit. It does define our history and how we've stood separately and how we've defended, but not everyone celebrates Anzac Day. It doesn't become such a, a huge thing for us. But there is a huge event that is going on that defines the nation Israel, and it's called the Passover. And once we understand this, we're going to see a framework to understand the rest of human history. So let's have a look at what seems arbitrary and ritualistic to start with and see if we can't find out what exactly is going on here. Exodus 12 verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month is to be the beginning of months for you. It's the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of the month, they must each select an animal of the flock according to their father's household. One animal per household. You must have an unblemished animal, a year old male. I look down from verse 22. Then take a cluster of hyssop. And dip it in the blood that's in the basin of the sacrificed lamb. And brush the lintel and the two doorposts with some of the blood from the basin. None of you may go out the door of his house until morning when the Lord passes through to strike Egypt and sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts. He will pass over the door and not let the destroyer enter your houses to strike you. The Passover was this moment that Israel was saved from what God was subjecting to the Egyptians. They were to smear the blood of this lamb a lamb that they had killed on their houses because that night death would affect everyone. God was giving a window at this moment into his right judgment. It's kind of like taking the final judgment that will happen. The Bible says there is a day coming when all deeds will be put before God and we are to to stand and we will be judged by God for how we have acted, how we have treated him. Whether we have treated him as he is, the one who sustains our life, the one who controls the universe, or whether we've pretended to be God. We've made the rules ourselves. That day is coming, but what is happening here in Exodus is like a mini window into God's judgment, a partial partial judgment from God that we get to see what is happening, and God is passing his judgment on these people. The only way to escape the judgment was that someone or some lamb had to die. The firstborn son of the house or the lamb that was killed in their place. It's a graphic image. Blood must be spilt. And we're starting to see a link between firstborn and blood being spilt. What this tells us, though, is it wasn't just the Egyptians that have offended God. See, the offense to God is of us all. Notice that if the blood of the lamb had not been smeared on the doorposts, or... If people were to walk outside their houses, they were dead. And something stood out to me as I was reading through that this week. Let let me show you verse 22 again of chapter 12. Maybe stick it back up on the screen if we can. 22 of chapter 12. Um, He says, Take a cluster of hyssop, dip it in the blood that's in the basin, and brush the lintel and the two doorposts with some blood in the basin. Okay, I get it. Right? And that way, when God passes over, those who've got that won't die. But I missed the next bit. None of you may go out the door of his house until morning. Why not? I'll tell you why. Because you'll die. See, the Israelites needed to offer something, needed to do something, needed to respond to God so that God would not give them what they deserved as well. They had to... They had to stay in their house. The only protection they got that night was the staying in the house that had the blood of the lamb over it so God would not do what he rightly could have done. Put them to death. The offense wasn't just the Egyptians. It was the Israelites as well. There is a problem, not just with the Egyptians, but with the Israelites and every other human being when it comes to us and God. 
This window on God's judgment comes and it shows us that not one person can stand unaffected before him. None of us have treated him as we should. All of us deserve to die. Here's the reality of Judgment Day, friends. All of us deserve to die. And the reality of this day was that someone was going to die. The firstborn or the lamb. The Hebrews, they were no better people than the Egyptians. Sure, they, they, they were the ones who oppressed. Um, uh, and the Israelites, well, they were... Um, sorry, the Egyptians oppressed the Israelites. And, and the Israelites were oppressed by the Egyptians. Sure, the Israelites worshipped the true and living God. And the Egyptians worshipped false gods. The Egyptians and the Israelites both deserved God's judgment. It's just that God, out of his mercy, out of his love, nothing to do with what they had done or how they had acted, chose to provide a way out that he gave to the Israelites. This isn't unfair. What would have been fair is that everyone died, but God chose with his people, his firstborn, to say, I'm giving you a way out, a way for you not to get what you do deserve. Death would fall that night, but on a lamb and not a person. It's as if God's saying, even you, Israel, my chosen child, if you in yourselves were to meet me in my judgment tonight, you would be dead. That's heavy stuff. I want you to see the implications of this. Firstly, There is no innocent party here. All are deserving of God's judgment. All are deserving of death. But secondly, not one person could stand unaffected that night apart from the blood of a lamb. In and of ourselves, you and I, we are absolutely no better than the Egyptians. If we were there that night, we would deserve to die if God's judgment were to come on us tonight we'd be found for what we have done. Our morals, our doctrine, our Christian pedigree, our religion, our denomination, our beliefs, our ethical behavior, our attendance at church, the way we've helped the poor, none of these matter squat when it comes to your relationship with God because all of us have rejected Him as King. None of those things are enough to deal with the penalty we deserve. This night, it's as if God is saying loud and clear to Israel, even though I'm delivering you tonight, there's an even greater problem here. You too need the blood of a lamb. There's an even greater deliverance that you need. Well, the key thing that the passage sets up here, I don't know if you noticed, was that this Passover meal wasn't just a one-off event. It was something that was to be remembered, a meal that was to be remembered. Passover instructions were given for each generation to remember the mercy of God, the way that the Israelites didn't get what God deserved. You can imagine that the children who come um, down the line, they weren't there. They didn't get to sit at the table that next morning. Imagine it, to sit at the table, to sit wherever they are, eating lamb, going, if this lamb didn't die, I would. That's an incredibly graphic image, isn't it? My life right now, my breath depended on this lamb dying instead of me. It was the lamb or me. And God has set this up in the instructions that he's given for Israel to keep doing it. He tells them to prepare for for 10 days before getting things ready. When you look at what happens in, in this first instance, they leave in haste. They can't do all the things, all the regulations that are set up about the Passover meal because there's not time. But why would God give all these regulations? Because he wants this to be a defining characteristic, a defining remembrance for Israel. He wants them to pass it on so that this firstborn child of Israel would remember God's mercy for them. God wants this one more thing remembered. This one more act of judgment. This one more amazing move from his end to see us not dead because of the blood of a lamb. 
Now, as a side unit, uh, sorry, as a side point, um, the family unit is the key way that God keeps passing on His Word. Uh, not many of you will have kids. Some of you might. Uh, teaching your children the truths about who God is is what God expects us to do. It's the role of the parents. That's why at Auckland EV, in our morning congregation, uh, we have a whole kids' church, but everyone who's school age looks at the same passage that we're looking at in church so that those kids might be able to go home and chat to their parents about what they learned in church today. And the kids learn at an age-appropriate level what the parents learn at their level, and they get to talk about it. What did you hear? What did you talk about? The family unit is the basic unit for passing on what God has done for us. Remember that. But what they were to know without a shadow of a doubt, what they were to pass on was this. The way we have treated God deserves death. It's very clear, isn't it? Very clear. The way we have treated God deserves death. And the only reason we are alive is because of the death of another. That's what's to be remembered. Their lives were dependent on the blood of a lamb. Every year they would do this. In fact, it would become so defining for them that <laughs> they would have reordered their whole calendar around it. Did you see that in chapter 12, verse um, 2? This month is to be the beginning of months for you. It's the first month of your year. God says, this is so important for you to remember that you deserve death. And the only way that you can be alive is the death of someone else in your place, a lamb. This is going to be so important for you that you're to shift your whole year to make this day one. What do we start with in our year? I deserve to die. But God has provided a way out. He's shed blood for me. What an amazing God he is. And he wanted Israel to remember it. To actively remember it. To remember what God has done. Now I think today we kind of push those things, those, these kind of, they seem like rituals into some, I don't know, relic category that our grandparents did and we push them in an old cupboard that's got cobwebs in an attic. And we're like, who wants to do that sort of stuff? We're not ritualistic. We don't, that sort, we don't do those sorts of things naturally. I was trying to think, what other things do we do to actively remember something? And the only thing I could come up with was this, and hopefully it, w- it will help you. Uh, I want to show of hands here. Who has in their wallet, or with them in, something, in their wallet, let's just say, a picture of either their boyfriend or girlfriend or their family? Hand? In your wallet, nice, nice, strong hand. No, right? Okay, I'm going to add to this. Keep your hand up. Uh, who has on their computer, uh, uh, sorry, on their desktop or, or something like that, a picture of their boyfriend, girlfriend, or family? Right, hand up there. Okay, add to it now. A few more hands. All right, here's one more. Who has in your house, somewhere that you see at least daily, a picture of your boyfriend, girlfriend, or your family? Can I see now? Yeah, here we are. Now, I want to ask all you people with your hands up, why do you do that? Like, are you going to forget what they look like? Now, why do you have a photo of them around on your, on your phone screen, maybe, or on your computer? Is it like, man, whew, I've got to remember what Sarah and my kids look like. And that's why I've got it on the wall. Yeah, that's right. This is my wife and my four, four kids. Whoa, Rowan. I get up each morning and I'm like, okay, there's four, there's four, 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 plus Sarah's five. Like, why is that? It's something that we do to actively remember these people are important to us. These people define something of who we are. This is my family. These people matter. God says, do this, because this is the event in Israel's history that matters. This is so important that you need to do it yearly. You need to reorder your calendar around it. It needs to be the thing that you are reminded of when you get it up each year. Day one, what are you going to do? I deserve death. But God in his mercy has provided a way through the blood of a lamb that I might not die. Actively remember these things. You got me thinking. How do I actively remember what God has done for us? How much energy and effort do you put into remembering the significance of this God? Sure, he might help me out. He might be an added accessory to get me through life at some time. Maybe that's the view of God that I've got. Imagine if you had that view of your parents or your family or your boyfriend or girlfriend or husband or wife. You're just something to get me through life, you know? Help me out. Actively remember, we deserve God's judgment. The only way out is through the blood of a lamb. In fact, this Passover meal was done so consistently that even when we get to the time of Jesus, they're doing it. They're doing it again. We see that this was continued throughout all the ages. We get right back in Exodus, second book of the Bible, all the way through, probably somewhere around 1,500 years, give or take, maybe a 1,000. There's 400 there when they're in slavery, right? There we go. 
And so you've got them doing this for a long time, every year, remembering this is what defines us. This is what we're about. I deserve death. The blood of a lamb is the only way that I can be saved. And we get to a meal and we see that Jesus is doing exactly this. Have a look with me. Mark 14, verse 12. Here's the context. Um, On the first day of the unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples asked him, where do you want to go to prepare the Passover so you may eat it. There's this question here. It's the expectation that this is what we'll do. We're Jewish. We're part of God's people. We, we, we celebrate the Passover every year. But look forward to what happens in verse 22. It's worth looking at this a little bit later, but look forward to what happens. They're sitting. While they were eating, Jesus took bread and gave thanks and broke it. He gave it to his disciples saying, take it, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and offered it to them and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Here, the Passover meal is being enacted by Jesus. Flat bread, um, the the grape juice, the wine is there. And Jesus is saying something very different, though. He's like taking this thing that has been the defining moment for all of Israel, and he's reinterpreting it. He took bread and said, this is his body. What? He took the cup. What are we thinking? Blood, right? He said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. What comes flooding back into my minds? The lamb. Who is Jesus? He is God's firstborn son. What happens? Abraham's son, Isaac. That's right. A lamb had to be slain so that he was saved and God provided the lamb. What happened with Moses' firstborn? Skin had to be cut, blood was shed, a covenant of blood was made and God's anger was relented. Jesus is saying at this moment, hang on a minute. At this point, there is no speaking of any lamb. Now they may have just forgotten to mention it. Why is there no lamb at this meal? I'll tell you why. The lamb wasn't on the table, it was at the table. Jesus is the Passover lamb. He is what Israel were looking forward to. What they were looking forward to when that blood was scraped on the doorpost, that some way blood being shed would deal with the relationship problem they had with God, them deserving death, that somehow that would happen. Jesus was that lamb. He was about to die in the place of his people. His blood would be shed, he said, so that people may be redeemed, bought back from their slavery, not to Pharaoh or to Egypt, but to sin. The greater problem the Israelites had as well. Jesus dies in the place of the people so that we can be called God's children. He buys us out of our sinfulness. Now, if you're not convinced of that, let me just show you some things quickly. In the Passover instructions in Exodus... They say it's very important that you make sure that the lamb that you bring is unblemished and that there are no broken bones. As Jesus dies, crucified, they usually break the bones of the legs in a crucifixion to make sure they're dead, but not a bone was broken of his. Coincidence? Scholars say that the moment that the Passover lamb was being sacrificed in the temple, Jesus was being nailed to the cross in Gethsemane. Do you see that? At the same moment. In Exodus, they had to take the blood of a lamb that's been slain for them and they had to get hyssop, this, this, this bush, and they had to, to wipe it on, on, on the doorposts. On that cross, in Jesus' last moments, they lift up to him a branch of hyssop. In Exodus, they, they marinate the, the lamb in bitter herbs. I take it that's to remind them of the bitter slavery they were in and to point forward to the sin that we would be experiencing and the bitterness of our rebellion against God. At the cross, they offer to Jesus bitter herbs to drink. They lift them up to him, this thing called myrrh. It's in Mark fifteen twenty three. if you want to look it up. Now, do you know what? Myrrh is the Hebrew word for bitter. The bitterness that came. In the Garden of Gethsemane, 
Jesus is awake. He's telling his disciples it's time to stay awake and to pray. This is the moment. This is the night. Just like God told the the, the, um, Israelites in Egypt, this is the night to stay awake. You're about to get out. You're about to get out of God's slavery and out of the oppression to sin. But the, the disciples couldn't stay awake. But Jesus stayed up all night as he's supposed to. If that's not enough for you, then come with me to John chapter 1. The closest followers of Jesus reports the way John the Baptist speaks of Jesus the first time he comes on the stage. Listen to what he says. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming towards him. And you know what he said? Behold, look, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the Passover Lamb. It's all been about Jesus. What happened in Exodus was pointing forward to the day that Jesus would come and die in our place. In Jesus, God has dealt with a much larger problem of our sin. And he's done it through the lamb that was slain. The Israelites were saved to leave and worship God on his terms. That's why they were to leave Egypt, to worship their God. I want to show you one more picture about this lamb. Uh, I've not got it on the screen because I want you to turn there in your phone, in your Bible you've got uh, to mark this passage because here is a picture of the future. Uh, Revelation is John, the Apostle John, Jesus' close follower, his picture of what is to happen in the future. Turn up to Revelation chapter 5. Mark this page because I want to show you here is the trajectory of human history. Revelation chapter 5 verse 1. Put a dog ear on it, circle this. There's something that we just need to see. Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll with writing on the inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. What we're looking at right now is into the throne room of God in heaven, where where the creator of all things exists. What has just happened in chapter 4 is that the angels and the elders have been round this throne and they've cried out at their loudest voice, Worthy, worthy, worthy. Worthy are you, God, for you created all things and by your will all things that were created have their being. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. That's what they've been saying. And here we see that we have a picture of this throne. Verse 2. I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? There's this scroll, this, these, these instructions in the right hand of, of the one seated on the throne of God himself. And there's this call to say, who is worthy to actually enact the plans, the instructions, the purpose of God? Look at verse 3. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even look into it. And I cried because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look into it. John is crying because the plans and purposes of God at this point seem like they can't be enacted. Is that possible for the God who is who he will be? Verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, stop crying. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David has been victorious so that he may open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw one, and here it is, like a slaughtered lamb, standing between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. This is picture language to say, do you see who is at the center of worship for all eternity in the future? He came and he took the scroll, the plans and purposes of God, out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and gold bowls filled with insults, in, incense. Thank you. And they sang a new song. Listen to the words. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered. You were redeemed your people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign on the earth. Everything that had been promised to Abraham by God that would happen through his people happens through Jesus who is also God's own firstborn son who died in our place. When God enacted what he enacted on Egypt, he didn't do it as some powerful God who didn't care about his people. He did it looking forward to him himself, Jesus, God the Son, dying in our place. He had skin in the game and it would cost him his son's life. 
all of human history looks forward to the point when we gather around the throne and say, you are worthy to take God's plans and purposes and fulfill them because you were slaughtered. And here's what happened. You redeemed people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. At the end of human history that lasts forever is a lamb, a slaughtered lamb. And everyone worships the lamb. The Passover was enacted so that people who weren't there would remember what God did, remember their need, remember the saving work of God. How do you go about remembering what God did at the cross? You might be here checking out Jesus, seeing who he is. You might have been a Christian for a long time. Do you actively remember what Jesus did for you? Do you see the centrality of who he is and what he's done at the end of human history is a slaughtered lamb? Does that control all that you do? So I thought through this passage, I don't think, I think like that. I'm always chasing one more thing. I'm not worshipping the one who was slain for me. But I put all sorts of things in his place, don't you? Reputation, popularity, money, pride, a house, a MacBook. A friend, of mine, a friend of mine once showed me a really helpful way to think about how important the things that we worship actually are. What is it that you find yourself thinking about? What is it that you think, if only I had that, I would be fulfilled? What is it that you worship with your whole life? Take that thing and place it on the throne in heaven. Imagine the elders around the throne looking at an iPhone. You are worthy, O iPhone, for you have... You idiot, Rowan! Like, who would do that? A MacBook. Do you think for all eternity that everyone, all of creation, is going to be gathering around a throne with a MacBook on it, going, you are the best thing ever? It's not even going to last a year. Something new is going to come out. Like, yet I treat this like it's number one. Relationships. They, they help take our lives and we worship them as they are number one and we want to work out this is the most important thing for me. Yet, they're but a blink of an eye compared to the eternity. A house. You think they're going to be around the house? You're going, to, you're going to build a big enough house that the rest of creation is going to worship it forever? Really? How about your car? Yeah, that's such a cool car. But do you think it's so cool that all of creation will worship it for eternity? It's not until we see the blood of a lamb slaughtered in our place, who is God the Son, who has dealt with our sin, that we recognize that is worthy of my worship. That is what takes the penalty for what I have done. That is what I need to focus my life on. What does all this mean? You have been bought by God at a phenomenally high price. The death of his son. If that wasn't enough, you already owed him your life for he made you. There is not one area of your life nor mine that doesn't deserve to worship God fully. There's not one area of my life, (laughs) there's not one area of Him, sorry, that doesn't deserve my fullest worship. Uh, If you're here tonight and you're checking out Jesus, I want to encourage you to see the claims of if this stuff is true, if Jesus really said these things, if they went on. But here's the thing, you might be convinced of that. You might be sitting here tonight going, yep, I want you to see a picture of your future and it's called Judgment Day. And the only reason you may get through it is because of the blood of the Lamb called Jesus. That he died in your place. Otherwise, the full wrath of the creator of the universe should be expelled on you and me. If you haven't come to Jesus, stop running away from him. Come and look at him. Come and look at what he has done. See if he did the stuff the Bible says he he did and said the things the Bible says he said. The only way you may be accepted by God is because of you depending on the blood of a lamb. If you are a Christian, if you're someone who says, yeah, I serve Jesus, then make sure he is at the center of your life. Make sure that as you think about what life is about, it is done with not some junk on the throne that's not going to last, 
but the lamb who was slain for you. And here's the news. If you trust in Jesus, there is nothing to fear. For not even God's judgment will touch you anymore. For in Jesus, he has taken that on himself so that you can stand forgiven. Death has no sting for those who trust in him. We have nothing to fear. Nothing. Because of the blood of Jesus, nothing can separate us from God. So go to him, won't you? Stop pretending we've got life together. I say this to me and to you. Confess your sin. If there's something that you're continually holding on to to say, no, I think I can deal with this myself, don't be so foolish. You can't. It is only the blood of the Lamb. Stop running away from this God and run to Him. Last night after Ethan's dream, I didn't really think much of it. Um, it's kind of weird, this thing that happened, but it's helpful. At 7 o'clock in the morning, I was finishing off the last bits of... I got sleep, it's okay. I slept through the night. I went to bed at 1, I think. There you go. Um, at 7 o'clock, I, I was awake, and my neighbor texted me, who's a Christian. And he texted me, and he go, Hey, were you out in your driveway a minute ago looking in our window? I'm like, no. He replied, because there was just someone standing at our lounge room window looking in our house. I replied, Ethan woke up last night at 12 o'clock, and... He said he, he had his dream where he, someone was looking in the window trying to kill him. My neighbor texts back, what are you preaching on tomorrow? I replied, the Passover. He said, we better start praying. I replied, brother, we have nothing to worry about because the blood of Jesus has been shed for us. There is no power, no dominion, no person that can rob from you and me or anyone on the face of this planet who trusts in Jesus, the hope we have in him. We need to walk away from this word tonight like the oldest kid at the table after the day of the Passover. Eating the lamb. Remembering that because of this lamb's death, I can live. You and I owe our lives to the sacrificial lamb. And if he is the center of your life, you have nothing to fear. Let's pray.